Welcome back to episode number 140 of The NP Dude. This is Jeff, The NP Dude, giving nurse practitioners a voice. That's everybody's voice that's out there that's listening. I don't care who you are or what your problem is. If you have an issue and you want me to kind of go through a hypothetical and see if I can help you in some way, I won't give you legal advice. But what I can do is give you a hypothetical situation, explain the possible legal ramifications, which is education, not, not law practice, and uh, maybe we can help you get, you get you to your own resolution without needing to go hire a lawyer. That's a good way to do it. Um, I'm at like 27, 30, I don't know. It's been exploding and I've been very silent because I'm extremely busy with everything. And to be perfectly honest, my commute is now only 20 minutes. So for me to pull out my phone, do a show... Um, I'm going to be that weirdo talking on my phone in the parking lot at work. And, uh, I guess every now and then that's not bad, but I don't want to be the weirdo at the new job. (laughs) So I don't want to do that. Um, and just finding the time to do, to, you know, pull things out and get things going. has just really been rough. So all of you that have sent questions and comments, concerns, I will get to them. I promise there's a backlog of plenty of information for me to have plenty of shows to go. And that's not the issue. It's all really just my timing. I am doing legal contract review for a good number of people in the state of Ohio, only in Ohio. I still get people every day that ask me to review their contract with a little wink emoji that says, here, review this, wink, wink, you know, and I'm I'm not going to do that. I can't do it. Now, I won't leave you stranded. I might be able to give you advice on where you can go get your answers, um, but I will not give legal advice outside of the state of Ohio. You guys know the housekeeping section, but I'm going to do it again anyways because we have new listeners every day. And people say, oh, no, you don't. I do. It's amazing. I'm still getting new people every day saying, hey, just found you. Love what you're doing. It's amazing the amount of people that are just fun in this show in different ways. And I've, I haven't put anything out in probably two weeks, and people are still still stumbling across the show and, and helping promote it. So keep that going. That's a great way to support the show and the work that I'm doing is to tell your friends. You can do it by sharing on Facebook. You can tell your classmates in your class. If you've got this uh, APRN class and you don't know what to do for an assignment, you could probably pick a dozen or more different episodes of my show as a template and go to town. The other great ways you can help support the show is you can use my Amazon affiliate link. How do you do that? You go to my website, thenpdude.com, you click on the Amazon banner, you do the purchasing you otherwise would have. It doesn't cost you a single dime more. I'm still getting about a daily purchase. It's not huge amounts of money, but I'm getting a couple purchases here and there. Um, Weird item of the day. I made a mental note, and I'm just so tired, I can't remember what it was. I can't remember there was an oddball thing in there that I was like, oh my gosh, that's weird, but cool. A lot of school supplies. I see a lot of you guys that are in school buying your school supplies. Somebody's a health nut because they keep buying like whey protein and and energy drinks and all this healthy food stuff, which is awesome. Go get it, man. Um, What else can you do to help support the show? I do have a donate button. Not many people use that. You do need to have a PayPal account set up. Uh, occasionally I'll get a big old, big old fat one, which, you know, which is like, wow, holy shnikes, where did that come from? And somebody will say, Hey, thanks for what you're doing. But I don't expect that. If you can afford to give a couple bucks every now and then I'll take it. It just helps support the web hosting. That's what I'm using it for. The, um, the other way you can help support the show is if you're really feeling spunky, I just sent out another, uh, couple t-shirts the other day. I do sell the t-shirts, the chronic intractables t-shirts. They're 25 bucks. 
Um, I got a couple left in stock. I need to do another run. Um, but if you're if you're interested, just give me an email. You got to email me, Jeff at the NPDude.com. Let me know your size and your address, and then I'll send you a link to the PayPal, and you just go ahead and pay for it, and then I'll get it out to you. I promise I will. I'm not going to stiff anybody for a $25 shirt. So uh, those are the ways you can get with me and uh, can help support the show. Housekeeping's done, right? I know it's painful for everybody, right? I get so many people. I've had like three or four people complain about the housekeeping. And I've had probably about four dozen people say, F them. (laughs) Like, just like that. So I I think most people are on board with my philosophy of, you know what? It's a free podcast. You get what you get, man. Right? (laughs) The last one was hilarious. Tell them to F off. I'm like, I'm not going to tell people to do that. That's too wrong. You can't do that. Be professional. At least kind of a little coming from the NP dude, right? All right. What do we want to talk about today? I've got two things I want to talk about. Maybe a third if I have time. But again, I, I, I'm a really short commute. So nice. <laughs> but I can't do my podcast every day now. The um, the first one I want to talk about was just, just came in like this morning. And you guys know me. It's last in, first out type of mentality. If it's on the top of the pile, I'll talk about it because it's fresh in my mind. This was the, the like perfect storm of malpractice problems. And uh, somebody contacted me. I'm not going to use names. I promise they're a newer listener. If you don't know me by now, I don't use names. And I change enough of the hypothetical that no one can ever figure out it's you. So, here's the hypothetical. You are working in, a, in a, um, an office. doesn't matter what kind. You have malpractice that's provided by your employer, which is a claims-made policy, which you are added as a writer contract doesn't say anything about tail coverage completely doesn't contemplate it at all which is one of my comments that I have when I do my contract review for people is let's think about this are they providing insurance if so who's providing the tail coverage now I always recommend getting your own policy in addition to that and we've talked about that ad nauseum you can go back and listen to all my malpractice shows and you can get all the reasons why okay But this individual had their own occurrence-based malpractice policy. Kudos to you. You were on the right track. But then the problem was is you got tired of paying for it and said, oh, screw it. I got my my malpractice through my, my employer. I don't need to worry about it. And you went with just their insurance policy, which it's a personal choice. If you feel safe enough to do that, whatever. Okay. The problem is, is that I'm going to use like a, a period of time that you let your occurrence policy lapse. Let's just say it's four months. So for four months, all you had was your employer's claims-made policy to which you were a rider. Well, now you want to leave that employment. Everything was fine. They were nice. You were nice. It's cordial separation. You just found a better job that fits you or whatever. And now you're going back to the employer and saying, okay, here's my notice. I'm, I'm leaving in 60 days or 30 days, whatever your termination is in your contract, because you're a good citizen and you want to do the right thing. The problem is, is that now they're saying, oh, well, we've got to get you a tail policy. And your contract is silent on it. And the question is, is do you need a, a tail policy? Yes, you do, because your occurrence-based policy has is, is lapsed. So for four months, you were operating without your own policy. Okay? So if you get another policy, you may be able to get that funky nose insurance thing that I talked about in one of my shows. Like, what the hell is this nose insurance? Well, you might be able to go get that, which is basically just retroactive insurance policy. So instead of saying, you know, today's June 5th, it'd be, you know, it would start, you know, January 31st or whatever. 
back to the date of your, your termination of your other policy. And that would cover you in arrears. But you're going to pay more for it. So you got to buy that nose policy. It's a separate rider to your insurance policy. Or they may just change the date and then increase your premium, which I wouldn't want to do because next year they'll forget that and your premium will be the same. You'll be paying for all that extra time you don't really need. So, or you could potentially. So the, the problem here is that you've got this perfect storm of you had insurance, you let it lapse. Now you've got claims made. So you're covered on their claims made policy, but only until the date you end your employment relationship. So the last day you're in the office, you're still covered. But the day after that, you're potentially liable for four months worth of patients. And the next question I always get, and I've had this question multiple times, what's my risk? Well, I can't answer that. You, you can answer that. The risk is the level of difficulty of the patients, the potential mortality of the patients, the complexity, the level of control that your office had. So in other words, if you f were just following the procedures of the office and you didn't deviate at all from that, you have no reason to believe that you've got any, then maybe your risk is very low. But I can't answer that and I refuse to answer that. So I, you, you have, that's a self-evaluation you know, and you have to weigh the risk that you feel you have to the, to the cost of getting a, a tail policy. And the quotes of the tail policy, again, are about three to four times whatever your claims made policy is. For most family practice, nurse practitioners, a claims made policy is around $1,000, which means that you're gonna pay between three and $4,000 for a tail policy. Now, here's the things that you can do. Or here's the things I would do. Let me say it that way, because I'm not telling you what to do. What I would do is I would go back to my employer and say, look, we both did not contemplate tail coverage. So we both screwed up. So we either should both pay for it or you should pay for it because you knew better and I didn't. Okay. So I would try to use that as leverage to say, look, you are potentially liable because I won't have any insurance. Who are they going to go after? They're going to go after the collaborative. They're going to go after the, the employer. They're going to go after, you know, especially if it's a physician to own practice. Now they can, people hate docs, man. They want to sue them every chance they can. So they'll sue them. Now, will they win? Probably not, but they might. It just depends on what the policies are in the offices. If, if you were following their protocol and uh, somebody got hurt, then you're both possibly liable. So that, that's where I would go. I would try to push that one back onto them. And they want that tail policy. It's in their best interest because they're not protected for a third of the year of your work. And this, and I, this individual, I have no idea what their, their time frame is. I'm just making up four months. So for a third of the year, you could have, you know, potential liability as an employer. I'll, tell you, I'll pay a couple thousand bucks for a tail policy. No problem. Makes that problem go away. I don't have to worry about it. Sure. Done. It's not worth rolling the dice, in my opinion. Because that one, one case could put that company out of business. Even, even if it was a wrongfully claimed case, they, they could still be detrimentally harmed by that. Now, hopefully they got more in the coffers than just, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars, but a lot of them don't. A lot of practices are paying month to month to make payroll and taxes and all that other crap. All right. So that's where I would go with that. Now, um, 
there was another question in there that was that was very specific to that. I'm not going to get into that one. I answered it through through my text message or my messenger, and I hope that that helps. I hope that clarifies. Now, the, the other question that was there, and it was just a generalized question about it, was you you say in one podcast, just get your claims made, just keep p- paying for it, and then another one you say, no, you need to get a tail policy. I mean, well, you if you do your claims made policy and you stay paying it, this person let it lapse. That's why I say you got to be Johnny on the spot with your insurance policy. If you let it lapse, then you're screwed. You got to pay, pay a tail policy or get a nose policy from your next employer. It's always harder to negotiate the next employer because they, they're going to have a surplus. It depends on the market, really. But if in Ohio there's a surplus of NPs, I'm not going to get anybody in the right mind to hire me and pay off my, you know, my, my, either my tail policy from the previous employer or get a nose policy to cover me from my previous bad act. I, it just, it's not going to happen. They're going to just say, you know what, you're complicated. We're moving on to the next one. It's just not worth it. Okay. Question two came up. Um, let's see, which one do I want to do? I got a bunch of them. There was a, a call that, or a, it was a PM, and then I ended up giving my phone number because it was getting complex, and we talked just for a couple minutes, and I'll do that every now and then if it's easier for me when I'm driving just to call you, and we'll go through your scenario, hypothetically speaking, and um, and you, you know, whether you need to get a lawyer or not type of thing, and this specific question was relating to a previous contract that had a very onerous non-compete and this individual says, yeah, I found a competing firm that wants to hire me, and I think I, I'm just going to take the job. And um, I want to go do that. And, and the problem then becomes, does the potential employer have a contract provision that says, and I'm seeing more and more of these, by the way. Sometimes you'll see in a contract a provision that says, you will come to us without any encumbrances, something like that. In other words, you have no non-compete that you have to deal with. And if, if there is one, you disclose it so that everybody can know in the open, in the new deal, this is your new contract with your new employer, that they're aware of your old contract terms. So that way, if, if for some reason, you know, six months in after they spent all this money to get you credentialed and you're finally up and running and they've expended all this money to get you to make them a bunch of money. And then all of a sudden somebody shows up and says, you know what, we're going to slap you with an injunction that says you can't work here anymore because you're competing. That's a bad day for everybody. So don't lie about that stuff because you, you can, they'll terminate your contract immediately and they'll probably sue you for all the money that you, you caused them to expend. So I would be very careful with that. That was another interesting one that came up. And I'm seeing more and more of that. And, and uh, I don't necessarily disagree with it. I think it's a good policy. And it, that, that just goes to show that you need to be well aware of what your restrictive covenants are, what your non-competes are, before you sign the documents. And whether you're willing to be able to put up with that. Because you have to be able to honor those. Many people will believe, oh, I can wiggle out of it later. You might be able to wiggle out of it, but it's a lawsuit which takes two years. Let that sink in. Your restrictive covenant probably would be over by then. And in, during that time, you're going to have an injunction that's going to prevent you from working in a competing firm or whatever, comp- competing office. It doesn't make sense to me. Try to get it as narrow as possible, if not removed altogether. I like removing them if I can, but in reality, there's a surplus of APRNs out there in my area 
they're signing these things. So people are willing to do the non-competes. I don't understand it. Especially as an APRN, you're not going to steal that much work. Maybe you will. Maybe you're that good. It's funny because physicians on one side of their mouth will say, oh, APRNs are horrible and they're dangerous and will kill people. But on the other side, they're saying, oh, well, you need to sign this non-compete because you're going to steal all my clients away. <laughs> this just doesn't seem to make sense, right? That's that's how I know that the, the, the anger about APRNs isn't really about quality. It's really about protectionism of their own job. All right, so that's another one. Now, the last one or the third one I was thinking about, and this is, is kind of off the cuff, was um, somebody in Texas. And I'm going to say Texas because I get a ton of people listening from Texas. Yeehaw, Texas. You guys are awesome. I lived in Texas for about a year when I was a little kid. So I'm kind of a de facto quasi-former Texan. Um Texas APRN, uh, I believe it was an FNP or an acute, maybe an adult Jero or something. I'm not sure, but it, it was, it wasn't psych. Went back and got a psych postmaster cert and says, how do I get biz- get started as my own company? And I'm like, oh my gosh, that's, that's, that's awesome that you want to do that. But it's not as simple as, you know, just, oh, I'm going to go open up a practice. And I see a ton of these on the forums, the Facebook forums, where people say, all right, I'm licensed. I'm going to start my own company. Let's go. How do I do it? And it's like, okay, if you're asking, I don't even know where to start questions, you need to get some experience first and look at what the businesses do and find out what's involved in that industry before you say, I'm going to open up my own business because you got to at least know how to do that work so proficiently that you have the time, a whole nother full-time job of setting up and or managing a company. So you got to get that done first. You got to get some experience. Regardless, you got to get the experience as, as, a, as a psych NP, get that under your belt, become so proficient that I can just, you know, you know, I'm done at four. I can go home. I got four hours of daylight left. I can go, go talk to the accountant or go work on my business prospectus plan or you know any of that stuff. Here's the fundamentals of setting up a company. I've done this a couple times now. I don't think a bunch of times, but a couple times. The, the first thing you need to do is you got to decide what you want to do as far as a company is concerned. Do you want to be a sole proprietor? Do you want to be an LLC? Do you want to be a, a corp, uh, which I don't necessarily agree with, but you have to talk to your account because as I'm learning myself, every state's different and some state taxes are different for LLCs versus corporations and all that stuff. So you have to figure out what kind of entity fits your state and your lifestyle and what it is you want to do. From a liability standpoint, the the corp and the LLC both basically act as a shell and prevent you from getting injured personally. They can't attach to your personal wages and all that stuff. Your personal house and cars and assets and bank accounts and stuff. As long as you're doing everything on the up and up. So it doesn't really matter from the legal standpoint. It really comes down to taxation. Which one's going to give you the best tax benefit? It's really simple to do the forms, but you got to know which one you want. That's the hardest part. So it's probably worth talking to an accountant, talking to, uh, you know, if, you, if you're pretty savvy about business and you can read stuff and pick up on it quickly, doing the forms to file with the Secretary of State in your state is really not hard. It's like a two-page form, and that's all it takes to make a corporation or an LLC. It's three-page, you know how. It's super easy. Maybe one day I'll go through what the 
the, the actual breakdown of that form is. Maybe, I don't know. Let me know if that's beneficial. If somebody wants to know how to break down doing a filing with the Secretary of State, I'll do it. But it's really not that hard, and it's not that interesting, so I, I don't want to do it here now. The, um, the other thing you're going to do is you're going to need to get a tax ID number. It's called an EIN. It's an SS4. is the form through the IRS. You can do it online now. You used to have to call and wait 20 minutes and talk to a human being and tell them all the information that was on the form, and they would give you a number, and it was done. You get your number, you're good to go. You can start start setting up your bank account. The bank account, most banks will require you to have your articles of incorporation or your um, your organization, articles of organization, which is an LLC. You have to have your EIN number. And you either, if it's just you, you can go open up a bank account. If you have partners or if you have members, multiple members, members are the partners, if you know, unofficially in an LLC, or if they're multiple shareholders in a corporation, then you have to get a you know meeting minutes that authorizes the opening of the account, and then you have to get some kind of resolution that says that the account with the such and such bank shall be opened. And so you, you have to have more formalized documents to get things done. It's not that big a deal. It's just it's all process, and you have to find out what the bank needs, and then you got to go figure out how to make it happen. It's not really that hard. It just takes time. the um, The thing that you're going to need to do in, te- in Tejas is that you got to have a collaborative agreement. And so, if you are working in a, I'm just going to use the example family practice, which is what I do. If you're in family practice and you get a postmaster master certification in psych, and you want to go do psych in your family practices, you know, I'm going to book, you know, eight hours a week as psych patients and do counseling and make a ton more money. Well, you can't just do that, okay? you got to have a collaborative that is within the same scope of practice, at least in Ohio. Maybe different other places, but usually you, you fall under what the scope is of your collaborative. Another great reason we should get rid of the collaborative because now you're stifling the ability for people that need mental health services to get it. It's a great reason to get rid of the collaborative, just right there. The other thing that you want to be really aware of is that the billing system, how you bill things, is different between a mental health institution and a primary care practice. So doing a mental health visit might pay eh, 80 or 100 bucks. For like a, the the equivalent of a nine nine two one three, it's different CPT codes in mental health. But I'm just going to use those as family practice. People will understand that. So for you know a fifteen twenty minute visit, you might make a hundred bucks. Whereas in family practice, you're only going to make like forty eight if it's Medicaid. So it's substantially better, more beneficial. So that's why psych people make ton more money. It's because the rates reimbursement are higher because there's less of them doing the work. So I would, I would be very careful about trying to jam in and start billing codes of mental health through your family practice unless you get some billing expert that goes through and talks to your insurance, third-party insurance providers that make sure that that's all on the up and up. Because the last thing you want to do is be, be accused of fraud and then get audited by CMS and, you know, oh my God, could you imagine? That'd be horrible. So what, what I would probably do, and this is just me, to be super anal retentive, is I would set up a separate company with a separate MPI number, and I would have a, my, my MPI number as a mental health person that would be billed through that company, and I would have my MPI number for, for family practice billed through another entity. 
through the family practice MPI. And I'd have two separate, completely organizations just so that there wasn't any potential confusion. And that may be the way it's mandated anyways. I just don't know. I've never had to set that up. But I would be very, very careful about it. There's a lot of other stuff that you can talk about with setting up a company. You, know, you need to talk about your insurances that you're going to need. Um, you need to make sure that if you have an existing family practice malpractice policy that you go to them and let them know, hey, guess what? I'm now psych as well. Can you give me a rider to my policy that will allow me to do psych? And they may split it by percentage. They may figure out, okay, you're doing you know 30% psych and 70% of, of family practice, well, that, that might be, you know, a, a different price. Whereas if you're doing hundred percent psych or hundred percent family practice. So keep in mind, you need, need to be making phone calls about that kind of stuff. Um, what else is there? DEA number you need to get, you got to make sure if, if you don't have your DEA number, you don't need to get a new one. So if your family practice, you have your DEA number, you're fine. You don't need to go get a new one. It's the same number for mental health. It's just it's you're registered, you're approved, you're good to go. The the problem is is that if you don't have a DEA, then you got to get a DEA, and you just got to follow the rules. You got to pay the money. It's like seven hundred thirty bucks. So you got to pay the pay your money to get your DEA, and you're gonna do that. You're gonna be using the DEA a lot. You're gonna use your you're gonna be right controlled. So that's what it's psych. There's a lot of anxiety out there. There's a lot of uh, ADD. There's a ton of stuff that you got to worry about. So your prescription, you're going to be on the radar more as mental health. But then you get paid more. So you got to take the risk. you got to do more work keeping track of that stuff, your state reporting stuff. That's that's kind of the gist of it. it, it as far as just saying, hey, how do I set this up? It, it, it's, it's, it's really a generic question. It's hard to answer that. But it is important to understand that that there's a lot to think about. You can't just continue working in your practice and say, oh, I can see psych and bill it now. You, there's a lot more to think about than just that. So it's at least you're recognizing that's the question, and I, I applaud you for that. We're wrapping up, guys. I want to go ahead and thank you. I know it's been a while since I've been out and on the show, but I'm kind of back. I'm trying to get into rhythm again. It's hard, but we'll see what happens, guys. I, I appreciate you guys using the Amazon affiliate link. I do appreciate the likes and the shares. You guys are really just, I've never had more fun in my life, especially in my professional life, than I am with you guys. You guys are just making this such a blast. So keep things coming to me. Don't forget to email me your problems and concerns at jeff at the npdude.com. And I just pulled into the parking lot. See, look at that. It worked out great. So you guys that are working, I want you to be smart, promote our profession, be super safe. Don't do stupid stuff. Don't don't ruin your license for someone just because they're putting pressure on you. I want you guys to, to uh, just really have fun with what you do. We'll talk soon.